podcast and explore. <laughs> oh, it's so good for a moment. No, you that. No, you that. Probably had like a Christian it, voice. You know, I'm trying it. to do Christian voice, and I just it was so right, good. Go. Yeah, we'll we'll try this again. All right, <clears throat> all right. Three, two. This is Manifest Zone, the podcast that explores the breadth and depth of the world of Eberron. I'm one of your hosts, Wayne Chang. I'm Keith Baker. I'm Imogen Jinjo. And in this episode, we'll be taking a look at Thelanus and the Fae of Eberron. Quick note, thank you listeners, thank you uh, people who are joining us for the first time, and thank you for all of our uh, returning listeners as well. Um, and all those people who are binging uh, the episodes, uh, we're still in the middle of the pandemic, but hopefully we're getting out of it soon. <laughs> <laughs> uh, also, quick note, um, we are sponsored by KB Presents, an imprint of Together Studios, and uh, if you want to check out what we're doing which just happens to be the same people, um, <laughs> go to togetherstudios.com and uh, take a look at what's there. So a couple references as we go into Thelanus and the Fae. Just now, a few. Just, just a few. There's only seven <laughs> that Keith's written about on his blog. Only seven. <laughs> a lot to say. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's not a lot. You know, it's, it's not a lot. Mm. I mean, he's written like hundreds of episodes, you know. That's a good um, point. But there's a lot of them. We're going to put them in the show notes so that I don't have to read all of them. Um, Keith, tends, Keith tends to write a lot about the Fae. I don't know why. It's true. Um, also, if you have Exploring Eberron or if you haven't purchased it, please go and purchase it. Um, there's a whole section on Thelanus. <laughs> and there's a lot of stuff in there. Um, I believe it's like five pages. I don't really actually remember anymore. Um, so something in there as well. And just so everybody's clear... Keith sort of likes the Fae. I, <laughs> we talk about it once a week or so. <laughs> so why don't we start with this? So for people who maybe are newer to the game or newer to Eberron specifically, what are we talking about when we say the Fae or we talk about Fairy? Or I think in general, because there's a book coming out from Wizards later this year, What is what does this all mean? So I would say one of the first things that is sort of simplest is as a general rule, not always, but, you know, as a general rule, when we say Fae, uh, we are saying things that have something to do with Thelanus. Uh, Thelanus, the fairy court, is one of the um, 13 planes. And part of the point there is it is broadly similar to the general concept of the Feywild throughout D&D, but it is not identical. It does have its own unique features. The general idea of Thelanus is that it is in some ways the plane of stories. Uh, you can see it as the plane of stories or as the, the essentially reflecting the magic that we want to be in the world. And... In some ways, this seems a lot like it has overlap with Dalquar, and the two are similar, but it's basically one of the key differences between story and dream is that dreams are random, they are ephemeral, they are deeply personal. You, you know, you drop into Dalcor, you have your own experience, it'll be weird, you'll be at wizard school in your underwear, and you'll wake up and might not even be able to forget it and remember it. Uh, whereas stories are deep traditional things that we share. And the idea of Thelanus is it's about those ideas of sort of archetypal folktales, things like the deluge, where there is a basic story that different cultures tell in different ways. 
uh, but the story is one we all know. And and that's the idea of Thelonis, is it's these deep archetypal stories that are so strong that they are reflected out into the world, or depending on your point of view, that they are so dominant in the world that they end up being reflected in Thelonis. You can argue which way that goes. So first of all, you have that concept of Thelonis essentially is what we think of as fairy tale. It's, it's stories that teach lessons that warn us of things and where magic and the supernatural blend into the natural world. I think one of the things just to just to give an overview there is <laughs> there's there's this story element um where everything's told as a fable or everything's told as a as um you know, folk tale or something like that. I, I'm actually reminded of the comic book fables mm-hmm. um, that, you know, all of the stories you've told and host all, all these like Cinderella stories, they're all true. Mm-hmm. They're real people. They're, they've existed in the world. I also really like the part where the prince, like if you've never read fables, you're not interested in comics. Just know this. All those fairy tales are true. All those Disney princesses, they're all the same. But the hero, quote unquote, the Prince Charming, Mm-hmm. All of them are the same one person. <laughs> so he goes from these story to story to story with these different women. Sorry, I'm I'm, I'm trying not to offend anybody, but it's just basically it's it's a really funny thing. It's um, you know, Prince Charming and all of these princes from all these stories are all the same guy. But the women mm-hmm. are all different, but the guy is the same. So he's just like horrible cad that goes and and like seduces all these princesses and all his stories, but he's just the one guy. But the reason I'm coming up with this is because it's funny be- it's funny to me because as we're talking about Thelanus being the land of stories, the land of storybook logic, the stand of, of fairy tales, it just reminds me that all of these fairy tales, like you said, they all have one um, converging source, or mm-hmm. sorry, they all have one converging story interpreted different ways in Eberron. And like you said, it can go back and forth. It could be that the people that have Eberron have told these stories over and over again that become real with Thelanus, or Thelanus is like, they've planted the seed and that seed has spread to these different cultures to tell the story in, in different ways. And I think, you know, part of the point there too is exactly that idea of saying you can have an archfey who sort of plays different roles in different stories. Like one of the ones we have in Exploring Eberron is the Lady in Shadow. And the Lady in Shadow is essentially the archetypal witch figure. You know, the mysterious figure who dwells in the forest or on the edge of things, uh, who is both dangerous but also has you know, powerful powers, you know, in some stories, they can grant you a boon. In some stories, they're going to eat the children. And in some stories, well, it's a line right between if you can walk it. And and so that is the idea of an archfey is an archfey in a sense can cast different stories. They aren't just tied to one little one. This comes back to the basic question of what is a fey? And the idea there is it sort of is a spectrum that at the very top of the the hierarchy, we have the archfey. The archfey are the figures that shape entire stories, that they are the sort of focus of the story uh, and drive it. And usually the focus of multiple stories that then spin off a similar theme. Uh, For example, just to look at one, we have the idea of the second son. And the second son is the whole point of this is the guy who just isn't getting what he thinks he deserves. 
and he's going to get it. He's scarring the Lion King. You know, he's anyone who sort of like he wants what the first son has and he doesn't get it. And so part of the point is it's not just that, oh, there is one story about that guy. It's that any story where you have the scheming, uh, you know, downstream relative could be part of the story of the second son. Um the idea of Archfey is that they're very powerful. They're sort of on a power level, similar to DM, deep, uh, to demon princes and things like that. But at the same time, they are bound to their domains. They can't change their story. They have to sort of continue to act their story. Downstream from them, you have immortal Fey who are basically immortal. Uh, but they are also part of a story or tied to something. And I like to say they're sort of supporting players or even set dressing. That the individual sprite is just this immortal little entity. And when it dies, new sprites will come and take its place. And its job is just to dance through the meadow because the meadow always has a cloud of sprites dancing through it. And one of the things we sort of suggest is the idea that the fae of that level don't really experience time the way we do. They don't really bother to remember the past. They just, they're immortal, but they're also literally kind of timeless. Uh, then in the third category, you get the mortal creatures, which have the the fae trait, like Aladrin, elves, uh, you know, anything that could be a player character. And they're, they are bound by time. If they're mortal, if they can live and die, if they reproduce the way we do, they don't have that complete, full sort of immortal fey entity, but they are still touched in some way um, by sort of storybook magic, if you will. Uh, part of the idea here is to look at the Eladrin in 5th edition in particular have multiple versions, which is to say they're considered <laughs> fey as monsters and they're considered humanoid as players. And the general idea of that is that, oh, if you encounter them in Thelanus, they are part of it. They are sort of drawn along. They are tied to a story. But once they come to Eberron, some of that energy sort of fades away. And that's where you get elves and gnomes and Eladrin that are fey-touched. They are part of it, but they have become mortal essentially by dwelling in, in the mortal land. I think that's interesting because, I, I mean... When Eladrin were were introduced as a player character race in fourth, mm -hmm. just in general, in D and D in general, they were already introduced in in third, and maybe in before. I'm I'm not as mm -hmm. familiar before that, but in third edition, Eladrin was basically, you know, right below Archfey. Yes, whatever oh, that, Archfey. that is absolutely like, true. That was like Eladrin was a, a race of beings that was that had powers. They were from the Feywild, and then in fourth edition, you have like. You have elves and drow and Eladrin, which basically was the high became the high elf. Right. And my memory is a little fuzzy here, but I don't quite remember. It was like once the Eladrin had crossed over, but then they become these creatures were sort of like elves. But you're sort of looking at it going, you guys could have used a different word here. <laughs> you're confusing. You're gonna like now if someone's just playing fourth or only playing fifth, this confusion is not you don't get this confusion, right? But for someone who's changing editions. You're going, oh, this is a little bit weird. This is a little bit off because I'm no. remembering different things. Yeah, because I think the Elantrin, I think in third edition and earlier, the Elantrin were outsiders, you know, like immortal right. spirits. Oh, yeah. 
yeah. from the plane. I can't, I can't remember which plane it was. Arcadia. Or it's like Arcadia. Yeah, I think Arcadia. Some, one of them. Yeah. One of the, new, the, the good planes. They were like anyway. solars. They were definitely like divas. They were like divas yes. and archons. They were yeah. chaotic good outsiders. And, uh, and, and part of the point of that is uh, we have an Eladrin, you know, named Eladrin in 3.5 in Shard, who, as I recall, might have been an Eladrin that we were saying was from Shavarath. Because at the time, like you said, they were chaotic good outsiders, and she was supposed to be a spirit of war. And with and that was third edition. Then fourth edition came along, changed things fifth edition. And I I know we've sort of shifted her story around in fifth edition to try and sort of account for that. And and there are ways to do it. And I think now she's an Eladrin from Thelanus. But again, part of that point is that, yeah, because in third edition, Eladrin was something very different. And coming back to that point of fourth edition where they were introduced, that is where we introduced the idea of the face buyers as pieces of Thelanus that drop into the world to explain how you could have Thelanus, you know, Eladrin player characters. There, again, the idea was sort of that each face buyer more or less has an archfey at its heart that is the immortal sort of essence of the city, uh, while the Eladrin are the sort of lesser host. They're, it's back to that idea. They're the supporting characters. They're the, the mortal cast uh, that play little roles in the story. They are less powerful, but they also are more free. That it's back to the idea that the true Archfey, for all their power, are bound by their own stories and are not entirely free. I suppose that plays into this, this sort of picking up the, the thread of motivation of, of these various monsters or NPCs. Is that the, the further you go up the sort of hierarchy of Fey, mm-hmm. the less and less the creatures there are going to care about Eberron or the, the, the sort of the mortal comings and goings um so well, you you know you're starting with the Aladrin and the gnomes which from the face buyers very much can and have mixed in and out with the general population in eberron you know the mm-hmm. as you said the face buyers dropped into uh eberron um mm-hmm. and mixed and you know that all the Eladrin became the elves, depending on whether you believe that particularly our origin story. Mm-hmm. But then when you get up to the Archfey, sort of perhaps in contrast to other particularly powerful beings like the Overlords or something, but perhaps more in common with, I don't know, something like the 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 um the creatures that rule the castles in Shavarath, you know, the mm-hmm. the the Archfey exist within their own stories and care about their own stories, but they most of the Archfey probably aren't looking to Im, sort of impose or bring that story on the mortal world consciously. Well, that's that's the sort of trick is that, and it's part of what I like about the Archfey is they are very different from the Dreaming Dark, from the Overlords, you know, the Lords of Dust, because you're exactly right. They aren't trying to their story doesn't change so part of the point is the forest queen is always holding dominion over her forests and if you go in there and you kill an animal you're in trouble that is just the story that happens and it's not like oh she's suddenly going to change that because there's a new king or a new uh you know a new because of the war or because of something like uh there that story is reliable um, the but at the same time, 
you can say, how is their story playing out at the moment? So one of the uh, ideas is the Prince of Frost is said to have been rejected by his beloved, and that caused him to turn from the Prince of Summer to the Prince of Frost, freezing his heart, and that the idea is that his beloved left him for a mortal. And so he basically hates dashing mortal adventurers because of that, but also specifically is waiting for his lover to be reborn. And essentially part of the idea of that is to say that this story could play out. One of the player characters could be his reborn lover. One of the player characters could be the reborn uh, spirit of his, uh, his rival. That basically you can say okay, this guy hasn't cared about the world for a thousand years, but he cares right now because uh, you are now part of his story. And this ties very much to the point of warlocks and for that matter, green singers. And we'll talk about that a little later is the, they don't care about the dragons. They don't care about the Lords of Death, but they care about this warlock because you have now become part of their story and you're playing that story out. And so... Um, you know, there is this sort of bigger question as you start to use them of you always have to say, what is their story? How does their story play out in the campaign? How will it matter? But we can drop down into that as we go forward. There is actually one interesting question I was thinking about mm -hmm. as, as we started this is that we're talking about the supernatural. Like, yep. you know, a lot of fairy tales were a way to <clears throat> scare children, to give stories, but they're all to deal with the supernatural. But now we're dealing with the supernatural essence in a game and, and in a in a mm -hmm. world where magic is real mm -hmm. where it's commonplace it's not like the you know we talk about wide magic how is how are the fae then different or how is the perception of the fae different in a world where where the average the average craftsman probably can cast the spell mm -hmm. you know and do something miraculous that are quote-unquote mundane can't mm -hmm. whereas in our world i you know i can't snap my fingers and and produce right. a flame without like flash paper, right? Because it's because of magic in Eberron is scientific. That was the whole principle of Eberron is what if we look at magic as a science and that the Fae are fundamentally not scientific. They are about fairy tale logic. So first of all, part of the idea is that artifacts from Thelanus, characters who uh, are tied to Thelanus break all the rules. Like I played an artificer who was from Pilus Periel and and basically used the Lanian principles, what I think we call magical thinking in uh, exploring Eberron. And the whole point is that he makes stuff, you know, he can make a magic pie, you know, he can uh, sort of make, you know, a toy and have it come to life. And so it's weird because it's magic that doesn't follow the rules of magic as we're used to it. Uh, and the second aspect of that even is there is a fae, the mother of invention, who the whole idea of that is to embody the idea of magical science gone wrong. It's the sorcerer's apprentice, like that basically she is about the stories about artifice, because in this world, there are stories about artifice. And, and so I think it's a very interesting question, but I think that's the key is that magic in the world is scientific and the magic of the Fae is absolutely not scientific. I suppose that sort of makes the analogy that the, the sort of the Fae magic in Eberron almost takes the same role that magic does for us. Yeah, 
Absolutely. Um, and yeah. And I think a, a secondary point to that is I say a couple of times the magic we wish to see in the world. The core example of that to me, because it comes down to druids in particular, is dryads. Is that the point to me is there is nothing natural about a dryad. A dryad is not part of the natural world. But the dryad is the story when we see the tree moving in the wind and we're like, oh, it looks so beautiful and graceful. It's like a like, you know, there's a a beautiful figure there. And we're like, and what if there was? What if there was a spirit in that tree? That's the dryad. It's not natural. It's not scientific. It's a story. And what if it suddenly was real? What if there was something in that tree that got mad because you chopped off a branch? And and that's sort of where the fae come in is they're not really logical. Uh, it's just, wouldn't it be neat if there was a spirit in this brook that would answer a question if my tears fell into it? Um, and, and that's sort of, you know, where the fae come for me. So why don't we... Why don't we move specifically into Thelanus? I mean, we've, we've talked very general and obviously you're getting some information, but let's talk about what is it about Thelanus that makes it unique to Ebron and not just because it's one of 13 planes instead of sure, sure. 16 or what or 12. So I'm getting confused in the Great Wheel because I haven't really played that before. But Thelanus, while it does play a similar some similar roles as quote-unquote the Feywild in um, the Great Wheel – um, analogy. There's a lot of different things here that right. that we're, we're working on, right? Well, one of the things uh, to start with that by touching on, uh, you know, point just above is that why does why do the Fae matter? And you know, part of it is there's lots of ways for the Fae to affect a story, even when Fae aren't in it directly. And we'll talk about all of these later. But just the idea of people who have made a bargain with a Fae, people who have been cursed by a Fae. Uh, you know, these are all things that can drive and spawn stories. So then turning to Thelanus, a couple of the most important things about Thelanus, the first is that we have always said it is one of the closest realms to Eberron. It is one of the easiest to reach. That Thelanus not only has uh, a great number of manifest zones, uh, but it is also the one where manifest zones will often let you move right through them. Whereas, uh, you know, basically most manifest zones don't actually act as portals, whereas Thelanian ones often will under the right circumstances. If you walk into the fairy circle when three of the moons are full, then boom, you might find yourself in, in Thelanus. If you're walking through the forest and you have your shoes tied on backwards, you know, that basically the idea of Thelanus is it's the easiest to reach it may not always be predictable or it may be in those sort of bizarre set of circumstances. You have to have these three moons and you have to have this or you have to be carrying this or you have to be crying or you have to be whatever. But that Thelanus is one of the easiest planes to just find yourself in. Um, any thoughts on any of that before I ramble on? I guess that that, that kind of plays into the idea of, you know, that Thelanus or just the Fae in general, that Fae magic is the, the, sort of a a strange thing for the people actually in Eberron right. as well. So that the Lannis, you know, you can access it more easily than, than the other planes. But nine times out of ten, it's happening because you're getting lost and you don't understand why it's happening. Right. Exactly. If you're just absolutely, you know, again, if you're trying to do it in a scientific manner, then gods are good, it won't work, because that's not <laughs> how stories work. Um, 
just uh, I, one of the things, just so that people are clear, that maybe who are approaching um, everyone from a different angle, when we talk about the Feywild in D&D in general, the Feywild is meant to be this bright echo mm-hmm. of of the world, of the prime material plane, whereas the Shadowfell is the same thing, is the dark echo. Thelanus is not that. Thelanus is its own plane. It's it's got some of those elements of the Feywild where there's the whimsy and there's we're not, but it's not, you know, one of the things that we say about Feywild is, you know, if you were to look at it, if you were to look at the same place, you know, maybe the cities are in the same place, but they look completely different or or there's a general feel. The Lannis is not that. And one of the reasons why manifest zones are so cool for about this is because it's DM fiat. <laughs> Keith mentioned like 16 things that you need to do. DM just goes like this, snaps his fingers, and be like, whoops, you walked you the wrong place at the wrong exactly. time. And you had a little bit of fairy dust on you because of the previous monster. And now you're in a completely different place and you haven't noticed it yet. But I think one of the things I would definitely des- describe is it is this the bright echo still. I would still describe it as as that. But just understand that when we're talking about this, we are we're gonna we're talking now departing from Feywild, and we're talking about Thelanus as a plane, as its own thing. Yep. But it's sort of, um, you know, th- thinking along those lines, it is this bright echo in the same way that um, when people tell stories or tell legends or write books, novels with all this, you know, wondrous language and purple prose um, and exaggerated stories of heroes and villains and and that's what the Lannis really is. Right. Um, I suppose it's you take everything and you dial it up to eleven because you know the, the, the thing grows in the telling. So and and I think that's a key point with manifest zones. So sort of just trying to focus on these concrete elements. So talking about Thelania manifest zones is part of it is the scale of intensity. At the lowest level, a manifest zone just may be a forest where there's a couple of fey in it. They've just sort of leaked out. There are dryads in this forest. Uh, On the more intense level, the manifest zone could be essentially an extension of a domain within Thelanus. Like this is a forest that the forest queen herself personally considers her domain. And when you walk through it, you're kind of half in Thelanus and half out of Thelanus. And that spectrum is important because, again, you can just say it's just a little bit Thelanus, under the right circumstances, the right moons, you might pass through. And meanwhile, there's a dryad who lives in it. Or you can say, oh, no, there's, you know, the forest queen herself watches over the animals of the forest. And if you kill someone with an iron weapon, oh, you're in trouble, you know. And part of the idea of that is that these should be things people in the region know. Like if you have that forest that the forest queen herself watches over, people tell stories about it. They know that, oh, yeah, you know about the guy who went in there, the hunter who killed the deer and came back, turned into, a, you know, who knows what. Uh, and so part of that point is that that think about the stories that these places cause. Uh, but the main point is manifest zones Thelanus are supposed to be the most common form of manifest zone. They are supposed to be, they range in intensity, but they are the easiest to to pass through under the right circumstances. Um, And also the idea that Thelanian manifest zones can also cross long distances. If you wander into one of the Forest Queen's forest zones, you can wander out in another one that happens to be across the country, uh, you know, but they're both part of her domain. (laughs) 
And so it can be an interesting, fun story device to you really want to get people to Sarlona, but there's no good way to do it. Well, they go through the forest and come out in the forest in Sarlona and oh crap, how did they get back? Because it doesn't work to just walk back through that door. Uh, so again, part of it is, is the Lonis can be a fun way to essentially kick off a story that doesn't again, make a lot of sense that breaks the rules that you're used to. Um, moving on to, to the geography of the itself, all of the plains of Eberron are described as essentially having layers or segments, you know, sort of core regions that then drift out into, uh, sort of more focused concepts. So Thelanus isn't one contiguous map. You know, you couldn't just draw a map of Thelanus because it's not one connected place. It's a whole bunch of independent uh, places, what we call baronies, uh, where sort of each archfey has their own little unique island, which in and of itself could have multiple layers based on the multiple different stories that are tied to them. Uh, so you have these sort of small isolated baronies that are the domain of a particular archfey and that will be reflecting their story. So the, the Prince of Frost, this is going to be a icy, frigid region with the palace made out of his frozen tears at the heart of it. If you go to the barony of the Mother of Invention, it's going to be full of like crazy pseudo wind-up warforged and trees made out of metal because that's what she came up with yesterday. <laughs> uh, and so part of it also is that layers of Thelanus let us tell, again, kind of ridiculous over-the-top thing that uh, a reason to go to Thelanus is because you want this story that is, as Imogen said earlier, just sort of bigger than, uh, than basically reality would hold. And so that's part of what can be fun uh, about doing that. What we have said is at the center of Thelanus is uh, the Moonlit Vale and the Moon Court. And this is the, the one thing I would quickly note is that uh, traditionally, the Feywild is divided into Seelie and Unseelie, and that is not a path that we chose to follow in Eberron. Eberron has basically the Moon Court, which is divided into seasons. And the seasons are constantly scheming, and part of the point of that is the idea that the season can change. It's not static. Uh, you know, part of the flavor of the Lanus at any given time is going to be, well, which court is currently, you know, which season is ascendant. And that if you go to a, Th a Thelanus when the winter court is ascended, it's going to be very different from if you go there when the summer court is ascended. And uh, so that gives us some of that. The winter fae are on some level similar to the concept of the unseelie. They are the darker, the colder, uh, whereas the summer is, yay, you know, like it's bright, it's happy. Uh, but it's not just the straight seelie unseelie divide, just like Eberron in general isn't quite as straight good and evil. Uh, so there's a little more room for flexibility. And plus the idea that the Moonlit Court itself is basically full of intrigues, which are great for adventurers to stumble into. They are great for warlocks. This is part of what does your warlock patron want? We'll touch on that in a moment. But part of it is, oh, it could just be tied to whatever intrigues they've got currently going in the Moon Court with the other seasons. And so there's lots of the barons are sort of off in their grand own stories, but when they come together, when the prince, you know, it's, it's back to fables in a sense, where the point of fables is all these fables jump together in one little neighborhood. That is the moon court. The moon court is where the lady in shadow and the prince of winter end up coming together 
and shaking their fists at each other, even though they're both winter face. So, you know, maybe not. So I, I suppose the, the last sort of other sort of concrete element of the Lannis that, that has been sort of defined in everyone is the face buyers. Mm-hmm. Um, I suppose just, just to bring up the, the, the sort of the idea of the face buyers as um, sort of more concrete structures within Thalanus that, you know, sit at the hearts of baronies or just in even some so of the, the smaller layers of Thalanus that can drift in and out as you need them. So the, the yeah. idea of the face buyers as exploring Eberron says them is that they are the cities of the moonlit veil and that they are uh, sort of governed by an archfey. Like there's an archfey that anchors each face buyer, but that they are essentially less sort of story driven than the baronies uh and that they are more driven by the story of their face buyer that uh pilus Perial, the one we've talked about the most is basically the prince of joy you know is the the prince there and so their ideas are a little broader but basically the face buyers i mean i'll come right out and say it the face buyers were created for fourth edition because eladrim were a player character race and we needed to say where the heck did the eladrim come from and we had this idea of, well, what if there are cities? It's essentially Brigadoon. It's basically, or Schmigadoon, depending how you look at these things, uh, of basically saying, there, you know, we know these stories. As I said, Brigadoon, a town that only appears at certain times. And we said, what if you just took that idea and said that there are cities in Thelanus that drop into Eberron at certain times. The Twilight Domain in uh, the Towering Woods, which is a very fey-touched place, but occasionally there is actually a grand city of fey within it. Uh, And part of that idea was to say, and the Eladrin can hop on and off. In fourth edition, we took it a step further and said, this is how it's always worked, but that the morning seems to have screwed things up and the cities are stuck here. That you have these seven Fae cities that have been yanked out of Thelanus and and stuck, marooned in Eberron, in part because that creates a whole lot of story of, whoa, you know, again, the idea of Pilus Perial as a a sort of gnome city of joy. Uh, And I think it's Shea Joradal actually is the one that's supposed to be the city of emerald lights and it's shiny and it's great. And it's suddenly dropped into Dargoon and under siege by goblins all the time. And and that that was a way to sort of say, let's not only drop a Ladrin into the world, but let's actually say, and eh, how do they deal with the world once they are no longer shrouded in fey mystery? And that is a fun story. We dialed it back a little in Rising and essentially have said the fey spires exist. They move between the worlds. It's Brigadoon. If you want to go with that, they're stuck in the world story. Please do. Again, one of my novels is based on that premise. But at the same time, that's really kind of up to you. If you want to just keep them as as they come and go, uh, you can do that. But it is still that idea of this is a place where you can concretely interact with fey beings. Uh, I wrote a whole article which we linked to on Pilus Perial, and there's a lot of ideas of like, oh, what you know, what's fun about being able to concretely cross over uh, in a way you normally can't. I think one of the things, uh, definitely in fourth edition, was the addition of face spire. Like the addition of Eladrin was a meh sort of thing. The addition of face spires, I, I, if I remember correctly, and, and because people still refer to it in fifth edition, 
is a lot of interest just to hear about these different things. Just it's new, it's interesting. It it throws a different spin mm-hmm. on how to interact with with Thalanus. And obviously, before exploring Ebron, other than what Keith wrote, you know, he only wrote a couple articles about it. Other than yes. and that, there wasn't a lot of information on how to interact with the planes. Mm-hmm. And I feel that with recent things and with recent um, ideas, and especially with the newer players that are coming up, the idea of the Fey um, in D and D in Eberron is just a is a big thing. Is it's uh, people are very excited about it. Uh, it seems, and just having that just gives a a new aspect. Um, and I think it's just us talking about it is just this is what we decided to talk about. But it's also it's also sort of from hearing feedback from community and, and whatnot, just saying, this is something we're interested in. This is this is something that we're doing. So, um, you know, that's just so you guys have a little bit of an idea of why this topic today. <laughs> well, it did fill a popular niche, I think. The <laughs> Certainly it was one of my favorite editions from the from the fourth edition era anyway. So, <laughs> so and, and as I say, I used it, you know, my novel, The Gates, uh, not The Gates of Night, uh, The Fading Dream you know, is specifically uh, deals with the face buyers because they were one of my favorite additions to fourth edition. Um, and I love the face buyers. I'm basically saying I don't want to force people to deal with mm. the, the stranded face buyer story if they don't yeah. want to, but I still think that's a fun story. Now I'd like to shift forward a little and talk about how the Fae can affect a story and specifically starting with player characters. Um, and one of the most concrete ways that we know about is uh, warlocks. You know, that's an obvious thing. The Archfey is a patron choice for warlocks. Uh, And I want to actually step back for that for a moment to say that this comes back to your point about what's the role in a world full of magic, uh, Wayne. And I think that part of that is because they present a way for people to get magic through a non-scientific method that the wizard or the artificer can learn, but anyone can potentially go and make a deal with the Forgotten Prince and get the powers of a warlock. Uh, And that that sort of creates this whole sort of category of of the unlikely hero uh, who sort of, in a sense, almost doesn't deserve their powers. Uh, And this comes back to the idea of what we've said is that Ondera in particular has a high incidence of of Fae and that a lot of families just have deals with Fae Uh, and that essentially you have your fairy godmother and that 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 again presents this sort of magic that doesn't follow scientific rules. It follows the rules of, oh, you better make sure you invite her to the christening. Because if you don't, there is going to be trouble. Uh, and that it's just a very different kind of magic. So uh, starting with the point of the warlock, uh, warlocks, we all know the concept is warlock makes a deal with a patron to get uh, power. And one of the things that is important when you're dealing with Thelanus is to stop and say, well, who's your patron? And most importantly, what is their story? Uh, in exploring Eberron, we give eight examples of Archfey specifically for that idea. Fortune's Fool is very much the story of the fool who just dives into things and somehow makes their way through it. It's Gilligan on Gilligan's Island. Uh, you know, the, um, and if your patron is Fortune's Fool, among other things, they want you to take chances. 
You know, they sort of want you to act out their story. Uh, the mother of invention is going to be wanting you to basically make crazy things or interfere with other people's crazy things or, you know, have a story that relates to invention and creation. Uh, the um, Forgotten Prince will want you either to steal things that aren't uh, appreciated, you know, steal reputations that aren't appreciated, or, you know, just find particular things the prince wants, you know, that that you sort of have these, these are the kind of bargains they're going to want to make. They have a story that essentially they want you to interact. Um, yeah, go on. I think it's, I think this is actually really important because I, I, I feel that when we're playing sometimes, especially with warlocks, <clears throat> deities are a lot more defined. So being a cleric of a certain deity, you have a certain definition, you know how that works. But the packs, we get names. Right. <laughs> and that's it. Absolutely. We don't we don't get a dom we, we get <clears throat> yeah, you're a Fey warlock, so you have certain powers, but you don't get the sense of what is this thing. Because you're not making a you're not worshiping a, a deity, whether in Ebron it's a, a nebulous force or, or whatnot, or in Forgotten Realms where there's an actual you know being this pact is you're you're actually sign, supposed to be signing or in some way making a deal with an actual thing an actual I, creature and not having something to do it's basically just saying it's a free power trip for you but as a dm you really want to be like who did you sign that deal with what was that what deal? do they want what was the deal and what what are you supposed to do like who is this person you signed a deal with or I use a per word person lately. <laughs> but but that's actually what I love about them is just jumping on that is the fact that they can be petty and they can be <laughs> deeply personal. That if you're a cleric of Orion, not only do we actually not know if Orion really exists, but if he does, he's everywhere. He cares about everyone. Whereas if you are a warlock of Fortune's Fool, for all we know, you're the only warlock of Fortune's Fool at the moment, and they care deeply about your story. Uh, and further, they're really pissed off about that thing the Second Son did at the last Autumn Ball, and that they can be like very narrow and, and tight in the things that they want in a way that, that clerics and traditional paladins really aren't. That, you know, and and so that's, you know, you want to think about what their story is and how you play into it, but then you're part of their story. And part of the thing to just sort of quickly touch on is this is most obvious with warlocks. This is what the warlock is. But the point is any character could use this as an explanation for their character. The most obvious one is the the ancient the Oath of the Ancients Paladin, which already has a very fey flavor. Uh, we have the Greensinger Druids, and we can talk a little more about them in a moment. But you could be a bard, who you are a bard because you made a deal with a merchant of Misshaven at the crossroads who gave you a magic fiddle. And that's the source of you being a bard. <laughs> And that just because uh, warlocks have it sort of baked in that they make a deal, any character can make a deal and have uh, remarkable powers. You know, your barbarian uh, could have made some kind of deal that is the source of their rage, you know, and your Because artificer. when you rage, you know, fairy dust flies out of you and, and everybody you kid <laughs> well, doesn't bleed, doesn't bleed, they just explode in sparkles. There there that, is that's actually how I'm uh, my kids. <laughs> there is actually a, a fey flavored art uh 
paladin, which is kind of crazy, a sort of wild magic paladin. But like I said, an artificer. You can play an artificer who has a deal with the mother of invention and who makes things out of lint and, and you know, fairy dust. Uh, <laughs> and so, so don't feel that you have to be a warlock to have that kind of mm-hmm. connection. Um, any more on that before we move on to Green Singers? I think I, I, I think did. basically. Oh, go ahead. <laughs> it's fine. Um, no, I, th- I, th- I think I just want to make the point that you know, if you're building a warlock with pacts, or if you're building a player character who gets their power from some kind of archfey, whether it's a barbarian or a paladin, and as you were saying, but it really is, you know, you're handing a, a silver platter over to your DM and saying, "Work with me." Um, it's, I mean, it, it's, I know what warlocks and fey warlocks are a very popular choice, but, um, they, you know, it's for good reason. It really is a fantastic opportunity to, to sort of build a story with your DM, both in universe and out of universe. That, that's a really big point I'd like to jump on, uh, which is just that I, you know, frankly, there's so much more we want to cover here that I'm not going to spend time on it now. But one of the links that we have is specifically an article, I think, called Fairy Tales in Eberron. And one of the key points to me is when you are making a fae or even working with one of the existing ones, you want to think about what is the most important, what's their defining story here? That article goes into that in a lot of detail of just saying, well, think about what are the elements of a classic fairy tale? Which ones apply here? Is the tale a warning? Is it encouragement? Uh, But coming back to that broader point of sort of what I will call fey-touched characters, uh, you know, there's a couple of just clear examples of this is a way a fey interaction could drive the story of my character. You could be the victim of a curse. And you could say, why would I want to be the victim of a curse? That sounds terrible. Uh, But take the example of um, the baker in Into the Woods, whose curse is that they can't have children. And the point is, that's not going to interfere at all with your adventure. It doesn't take some power away from you, but it's a clear, oh, I want to get this curse lifted because that is part of my story. Uh, in, I think we have an article about curses in Thelanus. So check that out. Of That has a bunch of different examples of here are kinds of curses that could drive a character's story without essentially penalizing you overly much. Uh, you could be the beneficiary of a fey gift, you know, looking to classic examples, Cinderella, Jack and the Beanstalk. Uh, and, you know, there is also the classic example in that line of fey giving someone a ridiculously powerful magic item in exchange for a minor service. You take the thorn out of the lion's paw and they give you this, you know, immense blessing or, you know, magic fiddle, whatever you have, uh, that that's sort of a classic thing. Um, and alternately, another possibility is the literal changeling, the character who actually fell into Thelanus long ago and has lived there and is only just coming back and is sort of having to readapt to the world. And, you know, I have all these, I'm a bard because I'm just from Thelanus and I learned to play music there and music is magic. You know, and I'm having to adapt to that. You all come from this world where music isn't magic and not everybody who sings is a bard. Uh, And so sort of all three of those are sort of different ways to explore a face story to your character without even having to go the strict. I have a patron I check in with every couple of, you know, every adventure. I think just to kind of add one more onto that list, um, Mm -hmm. one really sort of rich uh, character background you can do using some of the themes of Thelanus is 
to to play with the, the sort of the way that that plane blurs the boundaries between time and space um, yeah, absolutely. such that you can have a character who has wandered into the forest in um oh, well in the middle of the war and wandered out you know not a day has passed for them but 50 100 years has passed outside how do they adjust to this new world that they're in um, absolutely you you have a templar who got lost in the towering woods during the silver crusade and you know wait what do you mean the whole thing's you know galifar is broken uh i completely agree and and again uh this ties to the idea of um Ondarians having little family deals is that's back to the idea of the baker having the curse that he can't have children the, a lot of the idea of the Lanians having fate packs is literally just that kind of, oh, we leave a saucer of milk out every uh, fortnight and we get our shoes repaired. Uh, but you could still have that. This is a little deal. This is something my character has to do because if I don't do it, I'm going to piss off our, our my very grandmother, <laughs> you know, godmother. And, and so those can be just fun little quirks to sort of add mm. to a character or work into you're in a little village and it's just a stopover to where you're going. But, oh, the one thing you notice about this village is that, yeah, everybody, you know, wears their hats inside out. And why is that? And they're like, oh, goodness, put your hat inside out. Uh, because, well, they believe that the local fae, you know, if you don't do that, they're going to sour the milk, you know, or something like that. And so this, you can this sounds like this sounds like an entire book that Keith needs to write. And it's just one gigantic table of here's here's all the things they need to do be, to, to keep the fae happy. Um, it's it's going to be a hundred page book of just I, gigantic tables. I do see a D1000 D table yeah. of, <laughs> there yes, you go. Of, of weird fae quirks <laughs> that can happen. Now, uh, one of the things since – oh, and, and last, I just want to talk about the Green Singers for a moment. Uh, because the Green Singers are a faction that can be encountered as players or as uh, NPCs. And the idea of the Green Singers is that the Green Singers are a faction of druids that they're, they're sort of part of the Elding Group Druid sort of alliance, if you will. But they actually are quite different from the other druids. Because one of the points is that, as we said, dryads are not natural. Is that the green singers essentially love the intersection between Thelanus and nature. And they want people to see the world as a magical place. And they want the Fae and the world to sort of work together and be more integrated. Uh, and so first you have that as just a broad thing. The uh, green singers are people who love sort of fey interaction within the world. Second, you have the idea that a lot of the green singers sort of act specifically as ambassadors between uh, the world and Thelanus. That the same way the wardens of the wood are charged to keep the wild and civilization uh, sort of distinct and equal, uh, Thelanus, I mean, the green singers walk between Thelanus and the world, and they want to make sure that if all your milk is getting soured, they're the person who will come in and say, for goodness sakes, wear your hat inside out. Can't you see that that's the problem here? You know, so they are going to help you interpret the local fae to make deals with them. Uh, and as a, as a green singer, that always gives you a fun little, oh, the DM can always say, oh, by the way, there's a house spirit here that the people do not understand what its problem is. You could work with that. Uh, or <laughs> also the idea that green singers can, like warlocks, be basically have a tie to a specific archfey 
that they may not make a bargain with it the way a warlock does, but they're still basically, oh, I'm, I'm sort of working as your, your agent out in the world. I'd like to help them out if they could. I, I, I think that um, next, uh, next Patreon game that the, the green mm-hmm. singer is going to be telling people about their hats. You notice that Keith is also obsessed about hats. I don't That's know why. That's true. I have. I, I, don't, don't ask. No, don't no. ask questions. The hat does yep. not like to be questioned. Yep. Yep. Um, I mean, oh, we know no, the, we, yeah. Yeah. We know the hat's not a fake. Yes. Yes. I uh, know. The hat is the hat is definitely tied to Zoria. We all know There that. you go. We all know It that. is the hat of revelations. There you um, go. <laughs> but coming back to the sort of grander, uh, how this affects stories. Part of the point is what I like about Thelanus is that contrast between the Dreaming Dark, between the Chamber, between the Daukir, is that as a general rule, the Archfey aren't trying to conquer the world or to change everything. They want to play out their specific story. In some cases, what they want is for people to replicate their stories in the real world. Like one of the things we've called out is Sora Catra really kind of is the lady in shadow. And there's a good chance the lady in shadow likes that because that's kind of just making sure their story is, is sort of being reinforced in the world. And that to some degree is the kind of thing a warlock might want from, you know, might get from their patron is, uh, you know, if you're uh, an artificer tied to the mother of invention, they want you to have crazy artifice scrapes because that's their story. Uh, So on the one hand, you have that sort of idea that they're about just sort of driving a story, not about grand world changing things. Um, And that could be your story. Or again, the point is any villain could be getting support, whether they know it or not Uh, that, you know, the lady, the second son may just sort of push and, and prod jealous downward heirs because, well, he likes that story. You know, he wants that to happen. And so this is where the DM can sort of introduce little Fae touches uh, in places. But likewise, things like curses or artifacts. Um, Thelanus is a great place to just drop in a curse that is afflicting a village, afflicting a region, that ultimately when it comes down to it is because they're wearing their hats inside out. That, you know, like I said, it's not some grand scheme that affects everything. It's just you got to figure out what the problem here is and solve it. Uh, or it's the uh, the sword and the stone. Or as I think we suggest, I suggest in one of my stories, you can have a story about the axe and the tree where you just take the King Arthur myth and say at some point some druid stuck an axe in Oanlian and only the greatest, you know, barbarian in the land could pull it out. And and now you've got this magic axe, but it has a whole story attached to it. And, and now you're expected to be king of the druids, you know, and, and lead them to a thing. Uh, so part of what I like about working the Fae into a story is, is, as we said, it's the bright echo. It's the chance to basically fudge the logic of things a little. You know, and to to play with stories that feel more sort of over the top. Uh, and that don't necessarily make sense within the usually highly logical grand <laughs> scheme of things in Eberron. Well, I think we've sort of run the gamut between here and there, and um, hither and everywhere, and hither and dither. Mm-hmm. If you're if you're looking at this when you get uh, the the Wild book, it's hither and dither, and yawn. Um, but <laughs> basically, I think we covered 
that mm-hmm. this is a gigantic topic. Um, oh, for sure. You know, we're trying to cover Faye and Thalanis in one episode. This is like saying, like, we're going to do the great, the last war or the dragon mark houses. Wait a and, minute. <laughs> and I, and I, think the, I think the biggest thing here is check out those articles in the, in the, the links, because again, there is an article specifically about curses and how curses could play into the game. There's an article specifically about Thelonian artifacts and how they differ from traditional magic and how they could drive a game. Uh, you know, there's an article about coming up with stories. So basically, if any of these particular points interest you, check out the you know the show notes because there's yeah. probably an article that will answer your questions. So, uh, I think that's it for now, and right. uh, we're, we'll get Keith starting to write on that that thousand uh, <laughs> d ten thousand d hundred thousand. It's just just one book, big book of tables. <laughs> All right. Well, th- well, thanks everyone for listening. Um, be sure to visit our website at manifest.zone where you can find subscription links to our show, post comments on an episode or leave a review um, on your favorite podcasting service. Um, So let us know what you think Um, and join us next time as we talk about something Mm. we don't know yet. We'll be reaching out to ask a few of you to hear what the community wants us to talk about next. Um, So keep an eye out for that. Um, And until next time, keep, Wearing your hat inside out.